Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On this last Sunday in February, Black History Month, we're going to replay portions of a wonderful discussion my co-host Irving Joyner had with North Carolina Congressman G.K. Butterfield about the history of Black politics in North Carolina and the legacy of George H. White. Before we play the first segment, Irv, talk a little bit about why this event was held. Well, this presentation was conducted on uh, February 15th and was designed to draw a connection between the uh, political struggle that African-Americans experienced during Reconstruction and how the signposts from those days should assist us in our uh, understanding of the political struggle that African-Americans are confronted with uh, today uh, in North Carolina and in this uh, country. And uh, Congressman Butterfield presented a uh, compelling instruction and history and legacy of what happened during those days and its impact on where we are today. All right, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and give it a listen. I want to introduce Congressman Butterfield. Most of you know him, know of him, but I think there's some uh, particular relevant points that uh, we want to make uh, in uh, presenting him uh, to you. Uh, Congressman Butterfield is a native of uh, Wilson, uh, Wilson County and Wilson uh, Town, the town of Wilson. I guess it's really a city. Uh, now, uh, and is the son of Dr. G.K. Butterfield, who was a a dentist in uh, in Wilson uh, back in the uh, 50s and uh, was one of the uh, first African-Americans in uh, North Carolina to be elected as a member of the uh, town council. Uh, In fact, at the time, uh, there had only been one other African-American elected after the 1898 uh, uh, Wilmington race riot and the um, disenfranchisement of African-Americans uh, to vote. Uh, but uh, Dr. Uh, Butterfield uh, thought it was important that there be African-American representation on the uh, town council in uh, Wilmington, and they uh, ran in a uh, district election and was elected uh, as a historic figure uh, in, uh, in, uh, in North Carolina. Uh, and that was very important for uh, Congressman uh, Butterfield because he was uh, homeschooled in civil rights activism and in civil rights advocacy by the uh, work of his, uh, his parents who were active uh, in the uh, community, active in the uh, church there, and active in challenging segregation, uh, the Jim Crow segregation of that that day. So uh, Congressman Butterfield grew up in an activist uh, home uh, where it was embedded in him and a part of his DNA that he be involved in efforts to Uh, rid ourselves of the shackles of uh, Jim Crow that existed during uh, those days. Uh, He is a proud graduate of uh, Darden High School, one of the preeminent high schools, one of the all uh, black high schools in uh, North Carolina that uh, was certified as one of the best schools, black or white, uh, in the uh, state of uh, of North Carolina. And of course, uh, leaving there, he went on to Uh, join us here at North Carolina College. It's North Carolina Central University. Now it was North Carolina College uh, then. And so his undergraduate years were spent on our campus where not only did he study, but he was also an activist involved in civil rights activities in and around uh, the uh, Durham uh, community. He was uh, uh, enrolled with a bunch of activists 
uh, African-American activist students who were intent on challenging uh, the uh, shackles of, uh, of Jim Crow. And then leaving from there after a stint in the military, uh, he came to uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law, uh, where he obtained his uh, legal uh, education. And uh, we are certainly proud of all that he did. But not only did he gain a legal education, he then ended up going back to Wilson uh, as an attorney where he uh, connected with uh, Toby Fitch, uh, who is now a uh, state senator, uh, formerly a uh, superior court judge uh, here in the uh, state, uh, and Quentin Summers, uh, who uh, also is a superior court judge here in North Carolina, uh, to start a, a law practice, uh, one of the first, and at that time, the largest uh, African-American law firm in the uh, state of North Carolina, uh, where he uh, and his partners were able to represent people in civil rights and other cases throughout eastern North Carolina. Uh, coming from Wilson, uh, you have to do more than just practice in Wilson. You have to practice all over the northeastern section of the state. And uh, so Butterfield was a, uh, uh, I guess, uh, 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 one of those uh, lawyers who traveled around from place to place representing African-Americans and others uh, as they created this uh, really successful uh, practice. Uh, I have uh, been knowing him for a while. He was the president of the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers and one of the uh, legends uh, in our time. And from there uh, became uh, a Superior Court judge where he was elected uh, and served 13 years as a Superior Court judge in the uh, Wilson uh, area or the northeastern part of North Carolina, where basically his, uh, his, 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 uh, he presided over roughly 42 counties uh, in, the, uh, in, in the state uh, before he was appointed uh, to the uh, North Carolina uh, Supreme Court. Uh, he was appointed there uh, by uh, Governor Hunt to uh, replace um, Justice Fry, Justice Henry Fry, who was the Chief Justice of the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court. And then when he was unsuccessful in retaining that position at the Supreme Court, he was then reappointed as a Superior Court uh, judge. In uh, 2004, uh, Congressman uh, Butterfield was elected to uh, complete the unexpired term of uh, Congressman uh, uh, Frank Ballance. Uh, a close friend, a, an activist, uh, someone who was also actively engaged in civil rights uh, as the congressional representative from Congressional District 1, uh, the district that uh, Charles, uh, Charles White uh, uh, represented prior to uh, 1898. And now he has served us faithfully since uh, 2004 as the uh, congressional representative from uh, the uh, first district of North Carolina. And now he brings all of that knowledge to us here uh, today as he talks about uh, that uh, history of uh, activism, of legal uh, challenges from uh, 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 Congressman White's uh, days up until uh, now. So with that, I want to uh, present uh, to, uh, to you uh, Congressman uh, G.K. Butterfield. So Congressman Butterfield, it's on you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor. And let me say good afternoon to all of you and just thank you so very much for joining this call this afternoon. And, and most of all, thank you for supporting North Carolina Central University School of Law. Uh, the law school has a very special place in my heart for, for obvious reasons. It enabled me to get a good, sound, stellar legal education. It also empowered me to, to do what I've done over the last 30 or 40 years of my life. And so thank you for joining the call and thank you, Professor Joyner, uh, for your friendship and, and thank you for your incredible leadership down through the years. Uh, professor Joyner, as all of you know, uh, is not only a law professor, he's not only the Charles Hamilton Houston uh, chair in the law school, but he is an extraordinary trial attorney who really litigates important cases on behalf of all of us. And so thank you, Professor, for all that you, you do. 
I don't know where to begin. Let me just, just make a comment about the uh, introduction a moment ago. Just thank you for that introduction. Uh, and thank you especially for, for the kind words about my father uh, and, and my family. It, it is true that my dad was very involved in what I call community action. Uh, he was a native of the island of Bermuda. He came to America in 1917 at the age of 17. He uh, couldn't find a job, and so he volunteered for the war. He was a non-citizen volunteering for World War I uh, to fight for the United States of America. He joined the Army and fought two years and, and was discharged, and that's when he landed in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, he came to Raleigh and decided that he wanted to go to, to college at Shaw University. Shaw University uh, was then, as it is now, a premier institution of higher learning, and so he came to Shaw University wanting a college education. The, the administrator at Shaw uh, uh, could not get a satisfactory answer from my father about where he had finished high school. And so they kind of doctored the records a little bit, uh, Professor Joyner. They kind of doctored the records and, and said that he had graduated from high school uh, in, in Ocala, Florida, which is where his brother lived. And he may have gone to school there for a week or two, but, uh, but they made it work. And they enrolled him in Shaw University, and that's where he stayed for the next four years and, and obtained his undergraduate degree from Shaw and then decided he wanted to go to dental school. And so left Raleigh, went out to Nashville, Tennessee, and, and matriculated at Meharry Dental College. And after that, he returned back to North Carolina and found my mother, whom he had met at Shaw. Uh, my mother was not a college student when they met. She was actually a high school student. Uh, for those of you who do not know, uh, back during those days, there were no African-American high schools in North Carolina, very few. Uh, the high schools, if any, were based at HBCUs. And so Shaw University had a high school. And so my dad uh, met my mom while she was finishing high school at Shaw. He was in undergraduate school at Shaw. And the two of them had met when they were in school. And so when he finished dental school, that's when he returned back to North Carolina and married my mother. Uh, they moved to Wilson, North Carolina, which was my mother's hometown. When he arrived in Wilson as, as a black dentist, the local white power structure called him in welcomed him to the community and said that that uh, the, the Negro community, as they call it, needed a dentist and that he was in, in the right place at the right time. And he thanked them for that. And then they offered to do him a favor. And the favor was allowing him to become a registered voter. African-Americans were not being allowed to register to vote during those days. Uh, the, the literacy tests and the poll tax were in full force and effect, uh, even if... Uh, even if you could pass the literacy test, the registrar still would deem that you did not do it sufficiently. But they waived all of those rules for my father and allowed him to become a registered voter. And after that, my dad tried to encourage his patients uh, as he practiced dentistry, his patients to go down to the courthouse and do what he had done weeks before. And that's when he was threatened. His life was threatened. And he was told that this was a favor or an accommodation for him. And he was not uh, to, to try to get anyone else registered to vote. And he didn't like that. He didn't like that one bit. He, he was obedient. Uh, he stopped his activities. Uh, and then the Depression came along in the 30s. And World War II came along in the late uh, 30s and early 40s. And so uh, very little happened politically uh, in my hometown during those days. But finally, uh, in the late 1940s, that's when the NAACP was formed in my hometown. Dad was the founder of the NAACP, and, and he became Mr. Voter Registration in the community. He was not satisfied with what had happened to him in 1928. And so in 1948, uh, 20 years later, he got out here and started a voter registration drive and decided to concentrate his efforts on Ward 3. The town was divided into six wards and Ward 3 had the most uh, number of educated African-Americans. And so he concentrated on Ward 3, getting black folk registered to vote and getting them to, to stand up to the literacy test. And, and it was reasonably successful. And so in 1953, uh, when it was time for the city council election, uh, dad ran for the city council in 53. And guess what? It was a tie vote. It was a tie vote. It seems that all of the African-Americans had voted for my, uh, my dad, obviously, and all of the white voters in the ward had voted for his opponent. It was a tie vote. And because of the tie vote, to resolve the tie, they had to sort of put both names in a container. And a little blindfolded girl would reach into the 
container, pull out a name, and lo and behold, it was my father. And so he became a, a member of the Wilson Board of Aldermen in 1953. That was a big, big deal. I call it an Obama moment. It was a big deal. Uh, he was actually Herb, the fourth African-American in North Carolina, elected to the city council in modern history. Uh, the first was in Winston-Salem. And I know uh, Caitlin, who is on this call, is from Winston-Salem. I bet she didn't know that. Uh, but the first African-American elected to the city council during the 20th century was from Winston-Salem. The second was from Fayetteville. The third was from Durham. And the fourth was in Wilson. And so I uh, thank you for bringing up that history, Irv. It, it's, a, it's a piece of history that I, that I revere. The rest of the story is, is not as, as favorable. When dad ran for re-election in 1955, no one thought that he would be re-elected, but he was. And then it was two years later, 1957, no one thought that he would, he would win, but the, the, the city fathers decided to, against my dad's wishes, change the method of election from district elections to at-large elections, which meant that my father not only had to run among the people that he, that he knew, but he had to run citywide among white voters and others uh, for whom he did not know. And that was a device that was a device used uh, to, to deprive the African-American community of representation. And so, as you can imagine, in 1957, he lost. He lost miserably. And the African-American community was very upset. Uh, if I wasn't on a Zoom, I would say they were pissed. Uh, but since uh, I'm a nice guy, I would say that they were upset. Uh, they were very upset that all of the work that they had done in the 50s to get this man elected, and now he was defeated. 59 came along, and my father would not run for re-election. He didn't want to put himself through that. In 61, another African-American decided he would run. He was our pastor. Uh, he ran in 61. Not only did the candidate have to run citywide, but there was also a requirement that every voter had to vote for six candidates. You couldn't single shot vote. You couldn't vote for one or two or three. You had to vote for a full slate. If you voted for less than a full slate, your entire ballot was discarded. And so that's what happened in 61. Uh, the Black community uh, decided to single shot vote for Reverend Watkins. Uh, and because of that, all of their votes were thrown out. Uh, Watkins sued. Watkins sued the city of Wilson. If when you get a moment, you can you can uh, look it up in Westlaw or, or Lexus or, or somewhere online. It's called Watkins versus city of Wilson. They sued the city. Case went to the state Supreme Court. They lost. Went to the U.S. Supreme Court and they lost at the Supreme Court level. The court found that that Watkins had failed to prove that uh, that had those votes been counted, that he would have won the election. And so since he couldn't offer that degree of proof, he could not win the lawsuit. And so because of that, uh, nothing happened. And so I, I give you all of that background to, to say that by this time, I am 14 years old. I'm watching all of this stuff go down and I know it's not right. Uh, I, I could see how Dad, uh, dad was disappointed and, and really disgusted and angry about the system. I could, I could feel the community and, and how they were terribly upset. Uh, I saw this black lawyer, the, the NAACP took this case uh, to the US Supreme Court. I don't know if Fairgood Marshall was part of the case. Don't think he was, but other uh, well-known black lawyers were involved in it and I could see how committed they were. And so I made up my mind that I wanted to, to be a lawyer and I wanted to go into politics. And, and now at age 74, with all of these years behind me, that is exactly what I've done over a lifetime. And so I didn't mean to give that long explanation, Professor Joyner, uh, but that is some of the stories surrounding my father. And there will be more to it that will be part of my book if I can ever get it, uh, ever get it completed. So thank you for bringing that up. You're listening to The Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been replaying this hour, a discussion my co-host Irving Joyner had with North Carolina Congressman G.K. Butterfield about the history of Black politics in North Carolina and the legacy of George H. White. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks and I am a 2L at the North Carolina Central School of Law. This week on the Legal Eagle Review, we discuss the legacy of Congressman George H. White. White was a lawyer, congressman, and racial spokesperson born in Bladen County, North Carolina. White graduated from Howard University in 1877 and became a member of the Bar in 1879. 
As a response to the 15th Amendment granting the right to vote to African Americans, North Carolina Democrats grouped as many Republican voters as possible into the state's 2nd Congressional District. At the time, the majority of Republican voters were African American. This district became known as the Black 2nd. The purpose of redrawing the district was to make it difficult for Republicans to elect an African American in any other district in the state. This method of redistricting based on political or racial power is known as gerrymandering. White was a representative in the Black Second for two consecutive terms from 1897 to 1901. White was the only African American elected in North Carolina at the time. As the only black representative in Congress, White was an eloquent and vocal spokesman for his race. He is perhaps best known for his valedictory speech on January 29, 1901, in which he spoke of the accomplishments of African Americans and of the hope for a better future. This is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. We're back. Thank you for uh, listening to the Legal Eagle Review. Now we're going to uh, continue listening to Congressman G.K. Butterfield on the life and legacy of George H. White. You wanted me today uh, to talk about uh, George H. White. Uh, I hope all of you have heard of George H. White. If you haven't, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody, just, just do some research and just, just listen to me for the next few minutes and I think you will know uh, a little bit about George H. White. He was a black congressman from Northeastern North Carolina. You should know that there were 20, 20 African-American congressmen during the whole period of reconstruction and post-reconstruction. Four of the 20 came from North Carolina. During those days, it was called the Black Second, uh, the Second Congressional District, and it's very rich history. But let's talk about George White for for a moment. And 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 I'm not sure I knew the George White story when I was in law school. Uh, I graduated from the NCCU School of Law in 1974. Uh, the class of '74 I was in. Uh, I finished. Um, well, I was in the undergraduate school at NCCU and Professor John is right. I started off with North Carolina College and during my years there it became North Carolina Central University. But I knew very little, if anything, about George White when I was there in college and law school. But oh, have I learned uh, so much uh, since that time. And this guy named George White uh, was born in 1852. Uh, that was some 13 years before slavery came to a legal end. Born in 1852, uh, when when George White was born down in southeastern North Carolina in a little town called Rosendale, uh, when when he was born, there were 300,000 slaves in North Carolina. 300,000. There were four million slaves throughout the South. Slavery was an institution, and it appeared that it was here to stay. And so when, when George White was born, the historians uh, are conflicted over whether or not he was a slave or whether he was free. Uh, that is yet to be resolved. Uh, but, the, but the truth is that he was born to a, 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 a father who was not a slave. He was a farmer. He was a what we call a free Negro, which means that he is a Black person who had acquired his freedom. And there were various ways that you could acquire, acquire your freedom. Uh, your, your, your owner, your slave master could set you free, uh, could do it by will, or could do it by deed. Uh, and there were other methods of obtaining freedom. But, but no question about it, George White's father uh, was, and we've documented this, he was a free Negro. Uh, he was also part Native American, which means Indian, uh, Native American. Uh, he was also part Irish. But his mother undoubtedly was a slave. And so that's, that's the environment in which George White was born in 1852. When, George, when little George White was eight years old, a man named Abraham Lincoln decided he wanted to run for president. The Southern states were scared to death of this man named Lincoln. Lincoln was from Illinois. They had tried to follow his career and they had every reason to believe that if Lincoln was elected president, that he would end slavery. He would take away their slaves and these 4 million people who lived in bondage would become free. 
And so when Lincoln ran, the Southern states, Southern white voters did not vote for Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln won the election, as we all know, and immediately 11 Southern states succeeded from the Union. They said, we're out of here. We don't want anything to do with Lincoln. We don't want any part of the United States. We are starting our own country. And they tried to do it. It was called the Confederate States of America. They elected a president, a vice president. They stood up a military. They, they enacted, they, 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 they developed a currency. Uh, and, and they did they did everything that an, that an emerging country would do they, in setting up a government, the Confederate States of America. They had nothing to do. They wanted nothing to do with the USA. And so because of that, uh, a civil war broke out between the North and the South. Uh, I like to say that the South declared war on the North. That is, that is more of an accurate statement. But a war broke out, and it was a brutal war. It was called the Civil War. We all know about the Civil War. Well, by this time, George White is eight years old, and, and I'm sure that he's beginning, as I was when I was eight years old, beginning to put things together and to understand what's going on around you. But then uh, in 1862, two years later, when George White was 10 years old, uh, Lincoln was, was tired of this war. Uh, thousands of men were being killed on both sides of the battle line. And, and Lincoln came to the conclusion that he needed to bring the war to an end. And so what did Lincoln do? He, he, he decided that, uh, that if he took away the slaves, if he did it by executive order, if he could find a way to take the slaves away from these Southern plantation owners, that it would take away their infrastructure. It would take away their ability to be independent. And so he came up with a bright idea. In September of 1862, September 22nd of 1862, Abraham Lincoln penned a document called the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. That document said to the 11 Southern states that it ceded, if you don't return to the Union in 100 days, by January 1st of 1863, I'm going to use my power, not as president, but my power as commander in chief of the military. I'm going to use that power and I'm going to sign a document and I'm going to call it the, the, the Emancipation Proclamation. And it's going to say that your slaves are free. And I'm going to send the military into the South and we're going to make sure the executive order is carried out. Well, Southern states, as you can imagine, didn't like that. The first thing they said in response to Lincoln was, you cannot tell us what to do. We are not part of the union. You don't have jurisdiction over our affairs. And furthermore, you are not the Congress of the United States. You're one man. You cannot legislate. You cannot deprive us of our property. We paid for these slaves. We own them. They're not citizens. And that's what the Dred Scott decision had said in the 1857 case. They're not citizens. They have no rights that we are required to respect. You cannot do that, President Lincoln. And Lincoln basically said, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to use my power. And sure enough, on January 1st, 1863, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which said that the slaves in the 11 states that were rebelling against the Union, that those slaves would be free. Lincoln came to the conclusion that he did not have the authority to end slavery in against states that were not in rebellion to the Union because he's using his powers now as commander in chief. And so he only freed the slaves in the states that were rebelling. And so those 11 states said, you're not gonna take away our slaves. The Southern, the Union troops went in and tried to free the slaves. And the Southern states said, Lincoln, you cannot do this. We are not part of the United States. You don't have the authority. And if you're using your executive powers, what happens when the war is over? What happens if the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decides in our favor that you have exceeded your authority? Uh, you cannot do this. But Lincoln tried anyway. But the legal efficacy of the Th Emancipation Proclamation was in doubt. And so when Lincoln is reelected in November of 1864, the first thing he does is to propose an amendment to the US Constitution called the 13th Amendment, which made it abundantly clear 
that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude would be allowed anywhere in the United States of America. And so on December 6th of 1865, uh, after Congress had already passed the 13th Amendment, on December 6th, 1865, the final state uh, that was needed to ratify the amendment, which was the state of, of Georgia. North Carolina was next to the last, uh, but the, Georgia ratified the amendment December 6, 1865. Four million slaves are now free. And so where is George White? George White is somewhere down in southeastern North Carolina wanting an education, and he starts trying to get an education. I suspect that he got some education from the from, from the Union troops uh, who came down and established freedom schools. Uh, but it was not a, a formal education, but I'm sure he got enough. And so in 1873, at the age of 21 years of age, George H. White left Southeastern North Carolina and went up to Washington, DC and enrolled in historic Howard University at the age of 21. And they accepted him into Howard. I suspect, like my father, was accepted into Shaw. I'm not sure that, that George White had a high school diploma, but this HBCU called Howard University that was named for General Oliver Howard, as I recall, who was a Union soldier, who was a, a valiant soldier for, for the Union Army during the Civil War. Howard University accepted George White into its program, uh, and he stayed four years in the undergraduate school and graduated in 1877. Then what did George White do? He came right back to southeastern North Carolina, came back to his home. But this time he settled in New Bern, and he wanted to become a lawyer. And during those days, my friend, friends, you did not have to necessarily go to law school in order to become a lawyer. Uh, you could you could study law under the tutelage of a judge. That's unheard of in, in this day uh, and time, but during those days, you could study law under a judge. There was a white judge in Newburn named Judge William J. Clark, who decided that he would tutor, he would, he would learn, he would teach uh, George White the law, and that he did. And that's when George White uh, stood for the bar exam, or at least he was admitted to practice law in 1869, and he began right there in Newburn. But you know what? He didn't practice law very long. He, he then developed an immediate interest in politics. And so his political career began when he ran for the North Carolina House of Representatives in 1880. Now, remember that we have all of these thousands of former slaves who are now registered voters. Slave men became registered voters in large numbers. Women could not vote during those days, whether they were black or white. But men, those black men, those brothers, rolled up their sleeves. And I, I'm, I'm informed that 85% of the eligible black men who were eligible to register to vote became registered voters. And they voted in every election. And so in 1880 in Craven County, Newburn, where there were a lot of African-Americans. He was elected, White was elected to the NC House of Representatives. And when he went there, uh, he was bold. He was unlike other politicians who were moderates. Uh, this brother was bold. I guess he got it from Howard University uh, when he got his training there. But while in the legislature, he focused on legislation that pertained to education. And he secured funding and authorization to open four black normal schools, and that translates into high schools slash college. He received the funding for normal schools, and that was the genesis for Federal State University and Elizabeth City State University and two other schools that no longer exist. And so he was doing great work, uh, and he was being recognized. But then he wanted to run for Congress. He wanted to run to con for Congress, and so he decided he made a political decision. It was very strategic. Strategic. He decided to move from Newburn to the town of Tarboro, which is in Edgecombe County. Now, Newburn, Craven County had a lot of black voters, but in Edgecombe County, there were thousands of black registered voters. There were thousands because the county was more than 65 or 70 percent African-American and all of the African-American men were registered to vote. And so he moved to Tarboro, which was the home of his wife. His wife was named Lena 
Cherry. Her father was a very prominent man in Tarboro. And so that's where he, he moved. And then before running for Congress, he decided he wanted to be the solicitor. Solicitor means district attorney or the prosecutor. During those day, days, it was called solicitor. And so in 1886, George White was elected as a solicitor in the second district. And keep in mind now that the prosecutorial district was identical to the congressional district. And so his theory was that if he could get elected as solicitor, then he could make a good name for himself and create the goodwill. And then one day he could run for Congress. And so he was highly visible. But in 1888, which was just a couple of years later, when he had his sights on running for Congress, his wife had a sister whose husband was also interested in running for Congress. So you got these two sisters, both with the last name, maiden name of Cherry, these two sisters married to two men who both want to run for Congress. And so it was a mess, as you can imagine. And so George White's brother-in-law was named Henry Plummer Cheatham. Cheatham didn't live in Tarboro. Cheatham lived over in Vance County, which is Henderson and up in the Oxford area. But Cheatham was a mild-mannered man. He was a moderate politician. Unlike George White, who was a bad brother, he was bold and he was forceful. And so they, they, they kind of fell out with each other. But at the end of the process, it was Cheatham who won the election. Uh, he won the election in 1888. He came back two years later and ran, and ran, and he won re-election in 1890. But in the meantime, George White is still anxious to run for Congress one day. And then it's 1894, two years later. And that's when George White could not wait any longer. He decided to challenge his brother-in-law, challenge his brother-in-law Cheatham for the, for the nomination. Now, I need to clean this up a little bit so it will make sense. It's called the Republican nomination. During those days, the Republican Party was the good party. It was the Progressive Party. It was the Liberal Party. It was the Democratic Party. That was the state's rights party and the conservative party. And so Cheatham and White ran against each other for the Republican nomination. You didn't have, you didn't have primaries during those days. The nominee was selected in a convention. And so when the Republican convention met, it was Cheatham and George White challenging each other, brothers-in-law. But in the end of the day, it was Cheatham uh, who defeated George White at the convention. And Cheatham was again nominated to run for Congress. But he had become so unpopular in the district and disliked by too many people uh, that, uh, that he loses the election in November. And then the Black second is now represented by a white congressman. And the former slave men, uh, former slaves did not like that very much. They had a majority black congressional district, but now they have a, a democratic congressman who is ultra conservative, who does not represent their interests and they don't like it. And so they prepare to come back in 1896 and to reclaim the seat. And that's when Mr. Cheatham, who had been defeated earlier, decided he wanted to make another run at it. And George White said, no, you are not. You, you, you lost this seat. We have a white congressman who doesn't represent our interests. And, and it's because of you, brother-in-law, you are not going to run in 1896. And George H. White defied his brother-in-law, went to the convention, and he was nominated. George White was nominated and he ran against his opponent in the November election. And on November 8th of 1898, George H. White wins the election and he wins it handily. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been listening to this hour, a discussion with North Carolina Congressman G.K. Butterfield on the life and legacy of George H. White. We're going to have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us.
Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight event. The North Carolina MLK Black History Month Parade and Block Party have been rescheduled for April 2nd, 2022. The event is free to the public and will be held on Fayetteville Street in Durham, North Carolina. This will be a fun-filled event to celebrate Black History Month that you do not want to miss. Again, my name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Community Spotlight event. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue this uh, discussion uh, that was presented by uh, Congressman G.K. Uh, Butterfield. Now we're going to go into the uh, final segment of this uh, discussion where uh, uh, Congressman Butterfield brings this uh, history up to uh, modern times. So stay with us as we listen to those comments. But by this time, by this time, most of the black congressmen, all of the black congressmen who had been elected during Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction, these guys had been defeated. And so there was no African-American at this moment in 1896 who is a member of Congress. And so when George White wins in, in 1896, uh, when he wins in 1896 and gets sworn into Congress in, in March of 1897, he was the only African-American in Congress. Can you imagine? Out of all of those white Congress members from the North and the South and East and the West, he was the only Congressman of color, the only African-American in the Congress. And so George White took his responsibility very, very seriously. And he, he, he spoke very loudly on behalf of African-Americans. Well, the two years went by very quickly, uh, but he was a very popular man. He was appointing African-Americans as postmasters in the various communities throughout his district. During those days, it was the congressman who appointed the postmasters. Technically, it was the president, uh, but whoever the, the congressperson, congressman nominated, that's who the president appointed. And so he was very popular. And so in 1898, White, George White runs again. And this time he is unopposed. He is unopposed. And so he wins a second term in Congress. But two days later, two days later, November 10th, 1898, a very significant uh, historical event took place in Wilmington. It's called the Wilmington Race Riot. And you've heard of the Wilmington Race Riot. Uh, and I can't read I can't stop reading enough about the Wilmington Race Riot. Uh, it's a stimulating story. I, I encourage you to read it at your convenience. But two days later, a white supremacist in Wilmington, which was the biggest city in North Carolina at the time, it was a port city. It was the biggest city in North Carolina. White supremacists went into Wilmington, and all of these African Americans were serving in high office in Wilmington. Eleven were killed, 25 were injured. And that was a very sad moment. It weighed very heavily on George White. And then George White became the primary target of white supremacists, of white supremacy. Uh, the politicians just turned all of their fire and all of their energy and all of their racism, all of their, all of their hatred, just turned all of this stuff onto George White. Uh, and the Raleigh News and Observer, which was the leading newspaper in the state, uh, labeled George White as the mastermind behind the Negro domination of local politics and businesses. And so he was, he had a target on his back. And then it's 1900. George White is trying to decide whether or not he's going to run again. That's when the North Carolina legislature decided that we're going to use what I call the nuclear option. Uh, we haven't been able to stop these black folk in, in the black second from voting, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to pass a literacy test. We're going we're gonna to kick everybody off the voter registration rolls, and we want people to come back and re-register. When white people come back to re-register, they will be approved. When African-Americans return to re-register, they're going to be given a literacy test. And even if they can read and write, they've got to be able to satisfy the registrar that they're literate. 
And so you know, and I know what happened then. Black folk, the black men who came back to re-register were denied the right to register to vote. And because of that, and also don't forget the poll tax was also uh, added as a pre-qualification for voting. You had to pay a poll tax. And then there was some concern among a few white people about what about our white brothers who are illiterate? We want them to be able to vote. And so the General Assembly carved out a, a, an exception, a grandfather clause, which said that if you are illiterate, but your grandfather voted before 1860, then you will be given an exemption. And you know what that was all about. That was about grandfathering in illiterate white citizens of that day. And so George White was, was, on, was at his wit's end. Uh, it was becoming a, a strain on his family. His wife, uh, Cora, had become uh, sick. And he thought that, that running in another campaign under these conditions would be fatal to his wife. And so he made a very profound public statement. He said, I cannot live in North Carolina and be a man and be treated as a man. And he decided not to seek reelection. And on January 29th of 1901, Congressman White went to the floor of the House uh, and he predicted that even though he would be leaving the Congress, that one day African-Americans would return to the Congress. He, he pleaded for the respect and equality for African-Americans. And he went on to say the following. He said, my colleagues, the only apology that I have to make for the earnestness with which I have spoken today is that I am pleading. I'm pleading for the life, the liberty, the future happiness and manhood suffrage for one eighth of the entire population of the United States. He was talking about you. He was talking about me. He was talking about our children and our grandchildren. He said that the Negro will rise again. And he made that statement in his very final speech on the floor of the House, March 3rd, 1901. He said the following. This, Mr. Chairman, is perhaps the Negro's temporary farewell to the American Congress. But let me say, let me say, Phoenix-like, he will rise up someday and come again. And George H. White left the Congress. That was March 3rd, 1901. Going forward, no African-American representation at all. Very little African-Americans allowed to register to vote during those days. And so the Black leadership was not dismayed. They may have been disappointed. They were not discouraged. What they decided to do was to take the same energy that they were using for, for politics and for elections and to, to redirect that energy into education. And that's why North Carolina College, North Carolina Central University uh, was able to rise up in 1910 because the energy was now redirected from politics to education. And that's why Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois and others, Carter G. Woodson, uh, told the nation that African-Americans had to be educated. And because of that, the whole movement, education movement evolved all across the South. And that's why my parents and your parents and my grandparents and your grandparents were able to get some degree of education because that was the determination of our forefathers and our foremothers. The more they were suppressed, the harder they worked. And that has to be where we are today. Let me conclude by saying that uh, this finally changed. Uh, Phoenix-like, the African-American in North Carolina did rise up and come again, but it didn't happen until after the 1965 Voting Rights Act. In 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. demanded a Voting Rights Act. He had led the civil rights movement in 1963 and four, which did not address the issue of voting. And so in 1965, Dr. King demanded of President Lyndon Johnson that he should support a Voting Rights Act. Johnson didn't want to do it. Johnson was not particularly a racist. He was a good man. 
in my opinion, one of the greatest presidents who, have ever who has ever lived. If you don't understand that statement, research Lyndon Johnson and find out his record, uh, not when he was young, but he had a terrible record when he was young, but find out his record when he became president of the United States. Johnson said to King, King, I know Negroes in the South cannot vote. I know it, I'm from Texas, but, but we, we cannot address voting right now because I'm trying to bring in some anti-poverty programs in the South that you would be proud of. I want to bring in a Medicare program so that old people can have health care. The nation doesn't have Medicare. I want to bring in Medicare. I want to bring in Medicaid, which will provide health insurance, health coverage, health care for poor people. And you care about poor people. I care about poor people, he said. I want to bring in Medicaid. I want to bring in other programs that will help underserved communities. But if you make me take up a voting rights act, that's going to kill every great society program that I am envisioning. Please don't make me support a voting rights act. King didn't know what to do. King was disappointed. King said to President Johnson, President Johnson, I understand your dilemma, but you've got to understand that black folk in North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and Texas and Tennessee and, and, and Florida and elsewhere, they can't vote. They can't vote. This is a democracy. They can't vote because of this thing called the literacy test. We need a voting rights act. Johnson said, no, I'm sorry. That's when Dr. King went to Selma, Alabama, started a brand new movement, the Selma to Montgomery March. And that march was all about voting rights. You hear about John Lewis on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and Bloody Sunday and all of that. And, 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 and John Lewis was my dear friend, John Robert Lewis. I talked to him every day for 14 or 15 years as we sat together in the Congress. He's told me more stories than I will ever remember. But John Lewis representing SNCC, Martin Luther King Jr. representing SCLC, went into Selma, Alabama to advocate for voting rights. And King gave the green light to John Lewis to lead the movement. And John Lewis led that march to the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And it was a bloody Sunday. They returned and they decided to come back a few weeks later. And this time, President Johnson was embarrassed. He told the, the governor of Alabama, I don't like what those people are doing, but you better keep your hands off of them because they have a right to march for voting rights. And that's when John Lewis and, and others uh, Hosea Williams and James Orange and others that I knew decided that they were going to continue this time with another march. They left Brown Chapel Church, headed on the three-day journey to Montgomery. When they got to the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the state troopers simply folded their arms and watched them walk to the Capitol. And that was the Voting Rights March, demanding a Voting Rights Act. When the march ended, when the march ended, a white lady from Detroit, Viola Luizio, was shuttling some of the marchers back to Selma. On the way back on her automobile, she was run off of the road and she was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was a local hero in Selma, Alabama, was killed. Uh, and Reverend James Reed, who was another pastor uh, there uh, helping out in Alabama, was murdered. Those three people were, were murdered. And because of that, President Johnson said, I don't care about politics. I don't care about the next election. I'm, I'm probably not going to be reelected anyway. I'm going to go with what Dr. King wanted me to go with, and that is a voting rights act. Vietnam was beginning to bubble up, and Cuba wasn't, wasn't too stable, but that's when President Johnson supported the Voting Rights Act because of the VRA, because of the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We have now been able to level the playing field not just in North Carolina, but all across the South. And I'll conclude by telling you this, the Voting Rights Act had a lot of provisions, but the three that I talk about the most, and you need to commit these to memory. The first is they eliminated the literacy test. That's a good day's work. The second thing they created section two. Section two gives a cause of action, a claim for relief, we call it, to African-Americans who feel that their vote has been diluted or that, uh, that they have been disadvantaged by a voting practice or procedure or a voting system. It gave to African-American citizens the right to bring a lawsuit in federal court to try to prove vote discrimination. And if you win the case, then the court will take charge and direct changes that will remedy the problem. The third 
relevant part of the Voting Rights Act is Section 5. Section 5 applied to only several states in the union. Those states that had the worst history of voter discrimination, mostly southern states. Only 40 counties in North Carolina were covered. But those covered jurisdictions, before they could change any of their laws that affected voting, including redistricting, they had to get approval from the Department of Justice. And so Section 5 was put on the books. And we have used that very effectively. We didn't fully understand Section 5 and its power and its potency in, 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 the, in the beginning. But Black lawyers started getting it together, working with, with the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights Under Law and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and ACLU and other civil rights groups, uh, started figuring out how we could use Section 2 and Section 5 to change election systems and to challenge redistricting. And we have done that successfully. And so when the legislature of North Carolina drew the congressional districts in 1991, following the census, they were required by the Voting Rights Act to draw two majority black congressional districts in North Carolina, one up in the Northeast, one in the Charlotte, Winston-Salem, Greensboro area. At one time, it came all the way to Durham, but that's another story for another day. But two predominantly Black congressional districts. And because of that, Congresswoman Eva Clayton was elected to Congress in Northeast of North Carolina. It was called the first district, still is the first district. In the Charlotte, Winston-Salem, Greensboro district, it was called the 12th district. And Congressman Mel Watt uh, was elected in that district. And so that transformed the political landscape of North Carolina from 1901 to 1992, there were no African-American Congress members in North Carolina, but starting in 92, things began to change. We then challenged state legislative boundaries. We challenged county commissioners and city council districts all across North Carolina. And because of these activities under the Voting Rights Act, we now have hundreds, if not thousands of African-Americans serving in elective office across North Carolina. So there's a lot of history that we must understand. We must celebrate this history. And you as law students, those of you who are law students on the call, you must take up the mantle and you must go forward and to make sure that this progress is not reversed. So Irv, Congressman Butterfield talks about law students taking up the mantle and making sure that the progress that has been made is not reversed. Um, and of course, that means we need to stay constantly vigilant about protecting the right to vote. And you, of course, are no stranger to that fight. You have been in it for decades here in North Carolina and across the country. Can you talk about the current redistricting litigation that's going on here in North Carolina? Yes, the, the, the current uh, litigation, uh, we're, we're at a pivotal point uh, where the uh, court has just uh, accepted new maps, uh, which will identify uh, the geographical areas for uh, congressional races, for state Senate races, and state uh, House uh, races. And now uh, people are beginning to uh, gear up their campaigns uh, within those uh, respective uh, districts. Uh, this is not uh, an ideal uh, map, but no map is uh, ideal depending on the perspective that you have. But for African Americans, it's going to mean that we have to, uh, unlike what we've done in past years, gear up for this uh, midterm election and have a robust turnout uh, from uh, voters, uh, which means that we're going to have to ratchet up our efforts to register people to vote and then to get them to the polls uh, to actually cast their votes. For those individuals who are unable to get to the polls, we need to uh, ratchet up a campaign to help them to understand how they can vote from home uh, so that their voting power is not diminished because uh, we have to vote this year and in coming years as if our lives uh, depended on it. And in a very real sense, it does. Well, thank you for that, Irv. Um, and thank you for putting on the program with Congressman G.K. Butterfield. And, and I uh, want to mention very proudly that you are the Charles Hamilton Houston Endowed Chair here at NCCU School of Law. We appreciate all of the work that, you've, that you have done and that you continue to do. 
Well, we are out of time. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.